Amplify podcast, the voice of the third space, which is being recorded under quarantine conditions by Google Hangout in Central Oklahoma. I'm Suzette Berlott. This is a special series called Corruption is Deadly. In this episode, Sarah Banna and I return to issues of corruption in the medical field and healthcare industry. We are joined by Rachel Cooper, who works with Transparency International, a global anti-corruption organization. Before joining Transparency International in 2017, Rachel served in the British Foreign Office, where she worked to deliver global health projects alongside international non-governmental organizations and medical colleges. As a diplomat, she served in the United Kingdom, Denmark, Slovakia, and Sierra Leone. Throughout her time focusing on health projects, she has worked closely with the British Medical Association, the Royal College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, and the Royal College of Nursing. Rachel has a law degree and a master's degree in development management. Please join us for this conversation about corruption in the medical world, as it is more important than ever to understand how corruption is not only costly, but deadly. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Corruption is Deadly. This is a special series of the Amplify podcast. And with me, as always, is Sarah Banna. Welcome back, Sarah. Thank you for co-hosting the show with me and for being here today. Good afternoon, and I'm so excited to be here. Thank you, Dr. Gerlot. Thanks, Sarah. And also joining us today is a special guest. Sarah and I wanted to return to a conversation about corruption in healthcare and in the medical world. We've been spending the past several weeks, as our listeners know, on issues of policing and the kinds of corruption that we see in that area. But yet we are a few months now into a global health pandemic where we kind of started this program. We wanted to come back, circle back, and bring in today a special guest, Rachel Cooper, who is joining us via satellite from the UK and uh, is an expert on corruption in the medical field. And she works for Transparency International. So thank you, Rachel, for joining us today all the way across the pond, I guess. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me, Suzette. Rachel, when we started this program several weeks ago, we had a guest who is in the medical industry here in Oklahoma. She's a nurse, and we didn't use her real name because she was actually concerned about coming onto a show and talking about the corrupt things that she sees happen when she's at work. And so we know that corruption is happening. We had a long conversation about it then. Uh, We talked about the ways in which globally the healthcare industry is one that is fraught with misconduct and, or at least has the potential for a significant amount of misconduct and, and that we've seen a lot of corruption. But particularly during this pandemic, when we have a global health crisis, it's more concerning than ever. But let's just ask you that, you know, why would it be more concerning now than ever? You've worked in this field for a long time. Can you tell us a little bit about kind of what you've seen happen and get us started with kind of like, why are we so concerned about this? Thanks very much, Suzette. Gosh, there is so much in that. In a nutshell, the reason why we are and should be more concerned now is because times of stress, times of strain, which as we all know, this pandemic is, they exacerbate and expose and open up vulnerabilities that were either already there or new ones. There are examples of corruption in health at all stages, and maybe we can talk a bit more about that, but at all stages of the healthcare value chain. 
and there are vulnerabilities to corruption in health at all stages. And what happens in the pandemic and what we're seeing is that there's a lot of pressure being put. People are trying to do things much quicker. They're trying to get hold of stuff. They're changing procedures. They're relaxing their regulations. No one quite knows kind of what new procedures should or shouldn't be applying. And when that happens, that leaves a lot of potential for those that might want to take advantage to do so. And that manifests as corruption. So it's essentially, why do we want to be more concerned now? Because there's so much more opportunity, because everything is so much more fluid and there's all that uncertainty. So let's talk about what you just refer to as the healthcare value chain. I don't think many of us really understand what that means. When we go in to the doctor to get some sort of medical treatment, there's a whole lot of stuff that happened before we ever arrived, right? That whole value chain. So can you tell us a little bit about that and then maybe point out some of those vulnerabilities that you mentioned along that chain that we need to be concerned about? Okay. I mean, as you've said, most of us really only interact with the healthcare sector at the end point, at that interaction between the health professional and the patient. And I think it's also quite important to recognize that at that end point, where what we call as kind of service delivery, we as the patient are probably at one of our most vulnerable points. We may or may not be very worried about someone, or we're feeling lousy, but we're really not at our strongest to be able to kind of identify and react. But let's backtrack a bit, because I referred to that value chain, and that value chain is very long, and it's very complicated. And what we're talking about is everything from the beginning at research and development, so where drugs, therapeutics, vaccines, all things that are very high on everyone's agenda at the moment are being developed. So the whole research and development process. And if we're looking at the sorts of vulnerabilities there, we are talking about how those treatments and vaccines are being developed. Vast sums of money are being plowed into very quick development of those at the moment. And pharma companies and others are, are utilizing those sums of money. But what transparency do we have about how it's being utilized? Who's doing what? Are all those trials that are being conducted, are they being registered? Are the results of those trials then being registered appropriately and in the right place so that everyone and subsequent scientists that are looking at that research is able to access it and doesn't have to go back and do the same and economic waste of lost science, as it were. So that's the beginning of the value chain. If we track the value chain on, we then go through, okay, you've developed your vaccine or, or your drug or whatever it might be, and it gets registered. What sort of interests are there in the regulatory bodies that are registering those therapeutics and those vaccines and those drugs that are approving them for 
manufacture and for public use. Are the people on those bodies declaring any conflicts of interest that they have? Conflicts of interest that maybe they worked for a pharma company in a previous time, that sort of thing. So we go from research and development to regulatory approval. You've then got your thing approved. It then has to be manufactured. Who's controlling the standards, the quality assurance, the quality reassurance of that manufacturing process to ensure that the product that the healthcare professional presents you with is at the right quality or is it substandard? Did something go wrong in the manufacturing process so the most important active ingredient isn't at the right proportion? Or was it totally falsified? Is it actually just a placebo presenting in a nice, credible box? So you've gone from research and development, approval, procuring that product, deciding that it needs X billion or X hundred thousand of whatever product it might be. How are those tender processes being run? Is the collusion, are there, is the price gouging going on? Because there is increased demand, is the price going exponentially upwards? How are you checking the people that you're tendering out to to provide that product that they actually have credibility to do so? And, you know, distribution in different parts of the world means different things. But, you know, if we're talking about Africa, maybe we're talking about how much of it actually falls off the back of a lorry in the process. But equally in America or here, it can be what's happening in the warehouse, what's happening in the general medical store in the state or in the city. And then finally, we might get back to that point of service delivery where that product is on the shelf and your health professional is advising you that as a patient, this is going to deal with your problem. And at that point, there are equally questions about potential corrupt professional being wined and dined by the manufacturer of that product, by the big pharma company. So I hope that gives a bit of a chance to um, see how all of those points of vulnerability can be manifest across the value chain. Rachel, thank you for kind of giving us the overview of what clearly is a long and complicated chain, a long, complicated process from that research and development all the way to what you get when you visit the doctor or go to the hospital. And obviously your point about transparency along that process, because obviously the longer and more complicated the process is, the more difficult it is, right, to make it transparent so that we have to be very intentional about making it transparent all along the way in order to avoid some of the corruption that is potential along that value chain. But can we talk for a few minutes about some of the red flags maybe that we've seen, some of the concerns that have been popping up now? I mean, you've mentioned things like we have to move faster because we're in a pandemic. We obviously are concerned about supplies and where we're getting those supplies from. We have to relax our regulations and perhaps even just, you know, throw out our standard operating procedures right now because we need to do what we're, we're doing quickly. And that means there are oversight problems, et cetera. 
So that being the case, what are some of the specific red flags that we're seeing in terms of money being siphoned off, in terms of counterfeits or potential deadly things being consumed, like hydroxychloroquine, for example? What would you point us to in terms of you know, like evidence of this actually happening? There are very clear examples of it happening already. And I'm sure we will continue to see it. And, you know, there are examples first of countries formally making those changes. So Australia passed a law to accelerate the rollout of diagnostic tests. Zimbabwe called for tenders to close after 48 hours rather than after the usual two weeks. The UK changed its regulatory approval mechanisms for devices. But actually, the the types of example that we're seeing is that, for instance, at the point of let's take R&D. So let's go back to research and development. We've got all these pharma companies and scientists and universities and academia, some of them funded by public funding. They are all, you know, rushing about on all our behalf, trying to develop new therapeutics and new vaccines. But we also see that there are a vast number, certainly in Europe, of these companies and consortia that are doing all this work who have absolutely no experience of previously registering either the trial that they are doing or the results that that might produce. So, you know, they don't really know what they're getting into in terms of how to ensure that their scientific effort is justifiably reflected. A lot of those trials are also very small. We also saw an example, I think it was probably about a month ago, of SugarSphere which was a consortium that nominally did some research on uh, hydroxychloroquine. And it wrote this research up in the New England Journal of Medicine and in The Lancet. Now, everyone, many people will recognize those as the, you know, they're the top echelon of medical publishing. So you assume that what you read in those is going to be credible and accurate. It subsequently transpired that that sugar sphere research was totally fabricated. I can't remember how many cases it was, but the 150,000 cases that their research was based upon didn't exist. It was totally and utterly fabricated. Now, okay, the New England Journal of Medicine and The Lancet were on it reasonably quickly. They retracted the articles, the reviewers of the article detracted their support for it. And those at the center of the kind of medical community probably know that it's been discredited. But that's actually too late. And uh, we know that there are some countries like Bolivia or Peru, I think, that have already, on the basis of that early supposed research, have built it into their procedures. And, you know, their procedures are supporting in some way the use of hydroxychloroquine when that research at least and the general research around it is not demonstrating that it is an appropriate therapeutic for for this cause. 
So there are plenty of examples. There are equally examples at the point of procurement where I think it was Brazil where they discovered they did a procurement for a large supply of PPE equipment. And they discovered that they were paying 10 times the price that they had paid in January. Now, we're not talking about ventilators here. We're talking about PPE. So price gouging at, you know, at the very kind of basic level. But we've also got, got examples from, I think it's somewhere like um, Romania, where a failure to interrogate the true owners of companies that are procuring or that are undertaking to supply, a failure to interrogate the true owners of those suppliers reveals that companies that have no experience in healthcare and in some cases are fruit producers have suddenly got big contracts to supply stuff. Now, that for me demonstrates the essential case for beneficial ownership and registers of beneficial ownership so that it's very easy to check and discover who is going to be supplying and that they have credibility in that market. There are examples of nations clamoring and adapting their procedures and there are certainly examples of how corruption is, is manifesting and being exacerbated. Unfortunately, here in the United States, uh, we have actually done away with a lot of regulations, which has really increased the potential of corruption. It's been very tragic and heartbreaking to watch everything. But, uh, you know, as you walk this through the phases of developing pharmaceuticals and, and historically, we've always had problems with medicine, Right. Um, and it's, it's a very dangerous time, particularly with a deadly disease, that we are not taking the proper protocols. It is. It's undoubtedly a, a very difficult time. And actually, the, the real loss is the trust in the health system. Because if you and I no longer have trust in the process that has got us this far, it's very, very difficult to claw that back. And I think that that's going to be particularly true for the development of vaccines, um, actually, and around vaccines for coronavirus, where, you know, it's natural that if people on the one hand are being told it takes four, 10 years to develop a vaccine, and then on the next hand, they're being told, oh, but for this, we're going to be able to short track it and we're going to get it in, I don't know, 18 months or two years or nine months or whoever it is. Well, you know, you're perfectly justified to be saying, okay, can you demonstrate that you're going to have gone through all the assurance and the process that what you're going to present me with is genuinely safe and that I can genuinely trust it? I think that's a real challenge for governments, for pharma companies, for producers, and actually also for the media and for everyone in this, you know, in, in the battle that is also about fake news. I mean, I'm already seeing this happen. I was watching a panel discussion recently about racial justice issues, but the coronavirus and the impact of the pandemic on black and brown communities, which is a conversation that we need to have and, and I will save for another episode. But they raised this issue of 
I mean, just like Sarah just pointed out, people know that shortcuts have been taken. People know that regulations have been rolled back just in other areas for years. Here, as you point out, science being fabricated, right? Waste of money, price gouging, fake companies. We had a fake company in the United States that was provided, you know, tens of millions of dollars to make ventilators that they'd never made ventilators. In fact, they had, they were a bankrupt company that didn't even have any employees. So, you know, when you hear this stuff, you can't help but think, what am I going to inject into my body when this coronavirus vaccine is made? And I'm not an anti-vaxxer at all. And, and, you know, but the people who, who believe firmly in vaccinations are thinking, wait a minute, how am I going to trust that this vaccine is going to be based on solid science that, you know, was not in any way, shape or form fabricated or produced Mm -hmm. by a company or a provider that had no idea what they were doing. It's really concerning. How do we put the safeguards in place to avoid all the things that you've just discussed to try to produce the safest possible therapeutic that will allow us to feel confident in what we need to do, which is to vaccinate ourselves, inoculate ourselves, right? So that we don't spread this deadly virus forever. No, you're absolutely right. And that and that trust element. And when we look back, the harm that was done and the kind of fuel that played into the anti-vax movement from the MMR vaccine scandal. And they're still clawing back from that. And it's challenging. But I think that despite all of that kind of question mark, there are well-trodden paths about, as I said, I think at the beginning, that, you know, this is about ensuring that the bodies that are there for oversight are doing their job. So are the companies registering what they're researching? Are they reporting the results? Are they reporting results along the parameters of which they said they were researching? Or have they changed it slightly? have bodies and regulatory bodies got registers of conflicts of interest? Have governments got registers of beneficial ownership? It's actually not that complicated. And, you know, one of the things that we talk about quite a lot in in kind of transparency at the moment is about retrospective accountability, that ultimately, People will be held to account for all of this stuff. And, you know, companies that have taken shortcuts, it will come home to roost. And those that are playing by the transparency rules and are having at the heart of what they do compliance and trust, they will be the beneficiaries because they will be the people that you know, that the public believes. And I've little doubt that we will all have inquiries about, all our governments will have inquiries about how our emergency procurement mechanisms have been used or abused. There will be changes made. And, you know, we as citizens have a place and a role to play in all of that, advocating for that, and then asking the right questions. And even asking at the point of service delivery, questioning if your doctor tells you to go around the corner to this particular chemist, 
Why can't I get it from the hospital pharmacy? If the clinic near you or the the health centre near you is due to be being renovated, there are citizen groups that can check if you're meant to be getting X number of operating theatres, that you're getting X number of operating theatres and that it's not a shell um, of a building and that someone hasn't walked off with most of the payments for it. We at Transparency International, we see this as a kind of triangle. It's about governments, it's about the private sector, and it's about the public and you know civil society and communities and individuals. I was really interested to ask Rachel of how corruption may have played a role in the widespread of the disease and the lack of getting that information and knowledge of the virus, you know, being out there and how our global governments may have failed us. The WHO, and I'm very aware that your president has withdrawn funding to the WHO. I think that's exactly the same sorts of vulnerabilities manifest even in global governance. Global governance is often about who puts more money in, about which nation wants to hold this particular role or wants to have that commissioner. There's normally some reason for that in order to advocate for some particular line. And, you know, I think that there are strong cases for how, and you can you can track back in history, the lack of real teeth that the WHO has and why that was. And geopolitics plays a a role in that. And, you know, the reason that we haven't got a really strong, responsive WHO, and I believe the WHO, I'm I'm not an anti-WHO, I think WHO is probably trying to do its best in extraordinarily difficult circumstances. And I'm sure that you know, in five, 10 years time, we will look back and we will have had a significantly reformed WHO. But the reason that it's struggling is because of all those things over the last five, 10 years. You know, you you don't produce a wonderful multinational global organisation capable of responding to this type of crisis if it hasn't been funded and basic fundamental governance issues haven't been sorted out. So, yeah, I think that's has it contributed? I think geopolitics plays a role, undoubtedly, in, in all of this. How much it's contributed? Don't know. And I don't know that we'll ever get the full answers to, to any of that. You mentioned earlier the issue of accountability, and it relates to Sarah's question of global governance, governance structures, but also down to the very local structures. I mean, everything from top to bottom. On this show, we've dealt a lot with, we've discussed accountability a lot and how hard it is to hold those who violate laws, but not only that, just norms and principles, just, you know, are violating basic human rights that for whatever reason have the incentive to take from this health value chain and not give back to it what is needed to save lives and and do right by humanity? Will those who, who engage companies, corporations, governments, individuals be held accountable? And obviously, our global governance structure as it is, is there are issues with accountability there in and of itself, but even nationally, domestically, trying to hold people accountable when they actually do this. So in other words, the safeguards of everything happening properly to begin with is one thing. 
but then actually holding accountable those who do the wrong thing along the way, who will contribute to not only the loss of money, but the loss of life along the way. How do we ensure some accountability here? And how optimistic are you that we can do that? I think that just to pick out two kind of elements, two strands of really live debate. So there's a big debate at the moment between governments and funders and the pharma sector about this question of a kind of common global good and that the extent to which the pharma sector responds in a way which is transparent and reflects that understanding how they are doing science and also how they are pricing the cost of doing that science. You know, there's there's a kind of lots of historic opacity about the cost of research and development. How much time and effort does it actually cost to have X number of researchers, you know, standing in their labs for, for months or years on end? Issues about the cost of scientific endeavor. And that this is one of the first times where pharma have really been challenged about this is a global public good that is this the point at which we aren't just talking about little constituencies who are unfortunate unfortunate enough to be experiencing you know some sort of disease um, or condition it's a global thing you can't escape this anywhere so i think i think that's the first thing to say the other is actually back down at the point of service delivery and that is people beginning to talk about the allocations framework and that will be the kind of mechanism through which decisions are made about who is entitled to receive uh, vaccines or particular therapeutics. I think probably vaccines. So depending on how the science works and depending on how many doses of that vaccine are manufactured, it's not quick or easy to suddenly vaccinate the whole world. So what is that allocations framework? Is it everyone in particular countries? Or is it health workers and everyone over 70 globally? So some of those questions and the kind of inequalities about the negotiating power and the inequalities about if you're a more developed, richer government, you might be able to afford to put in now a kind of down payment to get X number of doses of of whatever it might be. But what happens to the low and middle income countries who can't do that? And there are systems, I'm not saying they're ideal, they aren't, but there are beginning to be systems to address and at least acknowledge and plan for those sorts of questions. Well, Rachel, that's an excellent way to perhaps end part one of this conversation because that opens that those issues of access, the issues of inequitable distribution of just suffering from the coronavirus to, you know, having the health care that you need. There's so much to talk about there. Fortunately, I, I wrangled Rachel into a second episode of Corruption is Deadly so that we can really expand on that issue. So thank you, Rachel, for sharing your 
expertise and your thoughts today. It's so important for us to understand all of the ways in which corruption is affecting our lives and the ways in which we need to be paying attention, what we need to be focused on so that we can be more confident about our health care in the future. So thank you for being here. And thank you, Sarah. Thank you both. Thank you very much. Good to talk to you. You've been listening to the Amplify podcast, the voice of the third space. This episode was recorded via Google Hangout and produced by Jackie Sexton Braun in Central Oklahoma. Find more about us and the resources we mention in our podcast discussions online at OurNameIsAmplify.com. You can also follow and interact with us on Facebook and Instagram at OurNameIsAmplify and on Twitter at OurNameIsAmp. Thank you for listening and for joining us in this fight to do what is right.